I'm very glad to be here with you all again this morning. It's been a little while since I was here, six months or so. It's glad to be here. Last time I was here, I remember sweating like crazy, so it was a little while ago. Uh, we're going to return, go to this story that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 18. If you've grown up in the church or around the church, then you know something about the Pharisees. And usually, in the words of a second grade class that I taught when I was in seminary, I said, who are the Pharisees? And they all, almost in unison, said, the bad guys. (laughs) It's like they'd watch Power Rangers in the morning, and they must be the ones that Jesus stands against. Now, Pharisees get a bad rap. They do. Jesus goes after them again and again and again. He goes after lots of people, but for whatever reason, in our imaginations, the Pharisees. Boy, if you've ever met one, mm, we have a stigma. We need just for a minute to set it down and reread the parable, the story that Jesus tells. History is always a bit more complex than the idea of the good guys and the bad guys. It always is, and it was that way in the ancient Near East when Jesus was walking around. Some of the Pharisees were actually followers of Jesus, and sometimes they remained also Pharisees in good standing, known as Pharisees. It was a complex thing. They were popular, very influential in kind of the religious ethos of ancient Israel at this time. They were a small minority of the people, but they were well-respected and known among the people, chiefly as the ones who actually took things seriously, who hated idolatry of any form, who would not compromise with those Romans who were there holding us under their thumb. The priests at the temple, they compromised. The Sadducees, they were squishy. The Pharisees were devout, serious, even to their own hurt, tithing everything. What this Pharisee says, I tax, I give a tithe of everything that I get. He's talking about, you know, the phrasing in the Greek. It's, it's I go through absolutely every single thing and give a full tenth. Even if maybe a tithe was already given on it, I don't care. Even to my own hurt, I do what God asks us to do. I hope you think about that and you say, well, that's not actually a bad form of logic. If God says to you to do something, it's always the right response to say, okay, yes, sir. (laughs) And the Pharisees were those who were known to have said that. So what was Jesus' beef with the Pharisees? Why does he go after them again and again? And this story gives one of those reasons. Jesus tells a story of going to church. Two men went up to the temple for prayer. It's not in some ways like going into a church in our day. They go into a church, and sometimes I see this parable painted this way, and they're sitting there maybe in a nice European-style cathedral or chapel, and And they're there in the stone building and the Pharisee is on one side and the tax collector's in the very back and they're both kneeling or the Pharisee's standing and he's kneeling or whatever. Uh, Again, let's, let's push delete on that. 
they went up to the temple for prayer. That's a way of talking about for worship. Jesus, in Luke's gospel, is on his way to Jerusalem, and he's traveling with a whole mess of pilgrims who are going there for a feast. The temple was up on the top of the hill in Jerusalem, so going up to the temple is actually a literal claim. That's where you would go. And it was an immense building. Immense. Most people, almost everyone, unless they happen to go to Rome at some point in their lives, almost everyone in Jerusalem and all those to whom Jesus is speaking, they've never seen a more impressive building than the temple. The temple itself was actually a very small building right on the top, but the platform around the temple was enormous, well over the size of a football field, gleaming white paved stone. They actually built a platform, so it's on a hill, and they built a platform over here just to make it even bigger. The stones that were used for that platform, you can still see them today. They're immense. They've stood up still all of these years later. And thousands, tens of thousands, would be on that platform every morning at 9 a.m.-ish and every evening at 4 p.m. or so, 3, 4 p.m., the morning and the evening sacrifices every day. So when he says two men went up to the temple to pray, this is the image in their minds. Two men literally walk up to the temple among the tens of thousands, sometimes hundreds of thousands, who would crowd in onto that temple place. And while they were up there, the central part of the service was a priest out in front of everyone. Everyone would be standing, looking, (laughs) trying to see. And up at the front, right in the temple proper, the priest would come and he would sacrifice a lamb right in front of you. Worship was not for the squeamish. Never has been. Sacrifice the lamb right in front of you. And then he would take it and he would put it on the altar. If you're not sure what the altar looked like, think of a nice gold-laden grill because it was a nice gold-laden grill. And he puts the meat and stacks the meat of the lamb onto the altar, lights the fire underneath with the wood, and it would grill the lamb. And as the smoke arose, it's called a pleasing incense, and if you like grilled meat, you'll understand it actually was a pleasing (laughs) scent, incense. While that smoke was going up, another priest would go over and would light a bowl of incense. And so you have incense going up and the smoke from the incense and the smoke from the, the lamb, the sacrifice, would mingle together. And as that was happening, the hundreds of the hundred thousand, at least tens of thousands, gathered all around there would start praying. Now this was not this kind of prayer. As far as we can tell, they would stand and lift their arms and they would just say their prayer. You can imagine it's a loud place. <laughs> Whether they were muttering it, even if they were just muttering, if you have tens of thousands all muttering, it's loud. You don't go to worship to sit very nicely. I'm glad you're sitting very nicely to listen to someone <laughs> preach. <laughs> I'm grateful for that, but that's a different kind of scene than they would have experienced. There was teaching and preaching at the temple, but it would usually happen with a group of people go gather around a particular teacher all throughout the temple complex. Jesus did a lot of his teaching at the temple whenever he was in Jerusalem. 
But the thing you went for was for the prayers, which happened in that moment as the smoke is going up. Thousands of people gathered, and Jesus paints this picture. There are two. Two people go, and they're in with this crowd. One is a Pharisee. They would have thought, okay, Pharisee. The other, a tax collector. Now, if Pharisees were generally honorable people, tax collectors weren't. They're not really in our day either. Uh, but don't make the mistake of seeing the tax collector as a poor, misunderstood fellow. Tax collectors were a wretched bunch. They deserved their reputation. It was more like institutionalized robbery than anything else. The way it worked was you would go to the Roman government who said, we need 20,000 silver pieces from this quarter of Jerusalem, from the southeastern quarter of Jerusalem, 20,000. You would go and you would say, I'll bring you 25. Somebody else might say, I'll bring you 28. And then if you won the bid, well, now you've got to gather both the 28,000 plus your own living, your own salary. And so you could gather 40,000. If you could actually gather it, you did. And guess what you had in your back pocket? The swords of the Roman army. So you can imagine how well-liked tax collectors were. It was something like these scenes of the mafia where they would send out a henchman to gather money from each shop. This was almost literally the way to picture it. Those henchmen are from that community. You would bid on an area of town where you lived. You can start to feel, I hope, what it would be like year after year, under the thumb of the Romans, and this, one of your neighbors, taking your money as much as he wanted with the swords in the background in order to fund the Romans who are keeping you under their thumb. So don't, don't misunderstand tax collectors as just, you know, a really misunderstood bunch. They were trying their best. They were not trying their best. <laughs> One scholar puts it this way, let's not deceive ourselves about the tax collector. He was not a decent fellow at heart, sorely misjudged by the godly folk. He was a rotter, an English scholar. He was a rotter, and he knew it. He asked for God's mercy because mercy was the only thing he dared ask for. But then that's the point. Two men go to church. And there they stand among all the thousands who are there to offer up their prayers. The Pharisee, seeing the sacrifice for sin right in front of him going up, the only thing he can say, boy, I'm glad I don't really need much of that. It doesn't even cross his mind to look at what's happening. He does believe in the grace of God of a sort. God, I thank you, right? God, your grace has made me so I'm not like those who shouldn't be here. You know, those who extort tax collector. Those who are promiscuous, a lot of the tax collectors and others. And then maybe his eye scans the crowd as everyone's praying. 
And back there he sees that tax collector. Maybe the one from his neighborhood. Not like this tax collector. God, I thank you. You see, he believes in grace. I thank you that you have made me not like these others. And he says it while the sacrifice for sin is going up. The grace he believed in was not enough. It wasn't enough of the grace. He doesn't need it. At least, not the way others do. And the tax collector, of course, he's way off in the back. Of course he is. He can't even pick up his head. Some of you know the dynamics of shame and why the classic picture of shame is always the head unable to be lifted up. That's where the tax collector is. He knows where he's standing. And he can't even lift up his head for his prayer. And all he can mutter as he watches the sacrifice go up is this one little prayer. In English, we miss a little of the translation. It's not a general prayer for mercy. There's lots of words just for mercy generally. This is a technical word that's used here. It's, it's a word always. Every use of it is tied to sacrifices. What he's saying is, Lord, may this sacrifice cover me. And that's all he has to say. May this sacrifice cover me. Two men go up to church. One returns home justified. The other does not. The whole point of going was to be able to go home justified, right with God. The Pharisee looked at himself and he found very good reason not to see the sacrifice in the way that others did. He's a good person. Had been for a long time. He did things right. He tried to do things the right way. He made sure his life looked the way it was supposed to. The tax collector didn't look at himself any more than just to say, may that sacrifice be for me. And that's it. Most of you may, some of you may know the name John Newton. He wrote a number of famous hymns. Amazing Grace is the most famous. Newton was a pastor in England in the 1700s. But John Newton had a life that was, to say it nicely, full to the brim of sin. He was lower than the tax collector slave trader actually on the boats and he was among the worst of them at one point in his life when he was a young man he was actually thrown out of a ship off of its company because he was so crass now to be thrown off a British merchant or slave trading ship in the 1700s took a lot he was a rotter if anyone was. He traded in human beings who died under his watch as he sailed to and fro to make a buck. In fact, he spent some of his time in Africa stirring up one tribe, his 
part of his role was to stir up one tribe against another so that they would raid and bring them prisoners from that tribe. Newton was promiscuous. In short, he was not the kind of guy that you sat next to in church, that you could imagine walking into church. He became a Christian later in life. But that doesn't mean you forget. It doesn't mean all of a sudden I'm a different person and I don't have to worry about any of that other stuff. He carried it with him. He knew grace. But part of why that man could speak of amazing grace is because who he was. And he knew the only thing I have to plead, the only thing, May that sacrifice be for me. That's it. I can't offer anything else. And it was for him. One of his letters that he wrote as a Christian much later in life, he said this, I was ashamed of myself when I began to seek Christ. I'm more ashamed now. And I expect to be most of all ashamed when he shall appear to destroy my last enemy. But oh, I may rejoice in him to think that he will not be ashamed of me. This is the dynamic in this parable. Friends, the Lord knows our shame. He knows it. We can't hide it. We want to. Shame says, hide, 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 hide. That's its moral imperative. And God says, see my son. He loved the world. He takes our shame. He already knew that you would take the grace he offers and sometimes not live up to it. He knew that too. And he says, come. This sacrifice is for you. Take Eat. The Pharisee failed to see what was offered because all he could see was himself and the other people that he was standing around. He didn't see God himself. Even at that moment. You and I know, we know, that there have been and are still churches in which the grace of God is imagined to be for those who only need a little bit of it. I was at a meeting once, another place, where someone came to the leaders of the church and demanded that a particular man, another person in the congregation, not be allowed to come forward to the table for communion because that man was sexually stained, a sinner. He struggled with pornography. And he said, every time I come to the table, I see that man. It's staining the holiness of the church, is his line. Where does the holiness of the church come from? It is too close a parallel to our story here. Coming to the table itself, where we participate in the sacrifice that that sacrifice was a participant in. And I'm just grateful I'm not like him who shouldn't be here at all. The sacrifice of Christ is for us the great leveler. (laughs) It's the great leveler. 
There is so much grace there that whether your cup is this deep or this deep, who's going to measure that anyway? And it overflows all of it. Two people go to church for worship. There is in this, of course, a warning on the one side. It's told to those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. There's a warning here. There's a warning for us individually. However long you have been in a church, whatever your life has not looked like, to see what we're doing every time we're here. For restoration as a church to continue to embody how much grace there is in Christ. That it's not reserved for those who don't need it. And there's an invitation here. I know some. Some of you know the reality of shame from your own life. Some of us have gone places we would be terrified if they were brought out into public. That's part of our stories. The sacrifice of Christ for us is still the great leveler. May that sacrifice be for me. And that's it. The one plea of the Christian church. May that sacrifice be for me. Some of you know the old gospel hymn, one of the most famous by a woman named Charlotte Elliott, Just As I Am. She wrote this hymn in a moment of her life when because she was very weak and sick, frail, she felt absolutely worthless. She was so desperate to get out of her bed and be out there. Her brother was doing all these great kinds of public ministries and she had to just sit there and feel useless. And that's when she wrote him lying in bed and it's a hymn that's done more good than <laughs> so many sermons been grabbed onto for dear life written in the plain rhythms and tunes of good old Victorian gospel hymns just as I am without one plea but that thy blood was shed for me and that thou bidst me come to thee O Lamb of God, I come. I come. Two people go to church for prayer, for worship. When it was first published, actually, the hymn was given the title from John 6, Whoever comes to me I will never cast out. It's an invitation here, friends. In a moment, it's an invitation not just that we think about, <laughs> I invite you in the name of Christ to come forward and to take hold of the sacrifice for sin and not see anything else except that prayer. May this be for me. And then rejoice as you see person after person. If you know the shame and the sin of their lives, rejoice more that they're walking forward and taking hold of Christ. Rejoice more for it until this place is a place that is known 
that here Christ's grace is found. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we give thanks to you that you saw us subject to evil and to death and you came for our sake. Lord, we have but one plea. All of us. Give us faith to take hold of it. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.